morning again. How's everyone doing this morning? If you have your Bibles, if you turn into Exodus chapter 20, I'd appreciate that. Exodus chapter 20. As I said before, this is a command number six. You shall not murder. Everyone got that, right? That's, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. So let's close in prayer, right? This is one of those commandments where people look at that, probably in our society, more than probably any of the other commandments, and they think, well, I've got this one. I've got this one down, right? We've got this one. And most societies around the world don't believe in murder. They don't believe in taking someone else's life, at least in theory. But those four words represent two words in the Hebrew language, don't murder. Now, some of your Bibles say you shall not kill. When it's translated like that, when it's translated you shall not kill, it causes all kinds of difficulty because people will come away with that and say, okay then, that war is wrong. And killing of animals is wrong and things like that. And, and there's difficulty with those two words, don't murder, because there's, a, there's eight words in the Hebrew language that can be translated don't murder, but the particular one that the Holy Spirit chose to use there doesn't refer to killing in illegal settings. Certainly regard to animals or with war, he would have chosen a different word if he didn't want that. Just understand, he would have chosen a different word, but he didn't. But the word translated murder to murder is better than kill, but the word translated murder is not an all-inclusive word. Uh, see, while killing is too broad, murder is not broad enough. Because it's taking a pers another person's life is what that word really means. It would certainly include premeditated murder and manslaughter and accidental killing and, and uh, suicide. And I would also put in there uh, abortion. I believe the Bible teaches that life begins and uh, conception in the womb. So taking that life of a human being any, any time period inside the womb would violate this command. But why, why is this important? You shall not murder. Why is that so important? Why is it so important? Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, you might want to write this down. This is what makes this so important. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, then God said this, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he did that. And that one event and that one proclamation makes us special, different than any else, anything else in all of God's creation. God says that you are made in my image, every one of us, every human being, therefore you have value. That's why you have value, because you're made in the image of God. But our society today measures not the sanctity of life, they measure the quality of life was what they look at. They determine the value of life based on the quality of life that you have. So if that life that you have is diminished at all, because of intellectual ability, because of age, because you don't have a voice in the womb, they don't value that, way, that life. It's not worth very much to them. But God's view is whole different about that. He says you are valuable. The reason you're valuable, because you're made in the image of God. That's what gives us value. You and I are made in the image of God. In, in the fall of the garden, and Adam and Eve sinned, and what was it, Genesis chapter 3? Okay, stay with me. Genesis chapter 3. That says, stay awake. After the fall, the, the image of God was marred in us. It was marred, the Bible tells us. But it was still in man. It just needed to be rescued. It just needed to be redeemed. And Jesus would do that. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Genesis chapter 9 comes after Genesis chapter 3, right? Where the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God has God made them. So the fall did not change that. 
it only marred the image. We still have the image of God, and this is only marred. And we find in Genesis chapter 4, the first illustration of murder. Adam and Eve, they had a couple of sons, and you know them by their names of Cain and Abel. Okay, you're awake. You're awake. That's good. You're with me. Cain and Abel. And both of them brought sacrifices to God, right? They brought sacrifices. And one of them was acceptable. Abel's was acceptable, and the other one wasn't acceptable. Cain's was not acceptable. And when they brought their sacrifices, God, Cain's was not accepted. And the Bible says he was very angry. His face was downcast. And he was discouraged. And God says to him in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, Then God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. He says, you must master it. So in those moments of sin, we have a choice. We can choose to rebel and walk and run further away from God, and that's kind of a, a, a place going downward our, in our life. We go cycle downward, or we can confess and lift it up, lift up our hearts and our face as well to God. But Cain chose to go down. The Bible says shortly after that, he and his brother were in a field, and while he was in the field, Cain rose up and he killed his brother. And maybe you say today, I would never do that. Hopefully you would say that. I would never do that. I would never take someone's life. But wait a minute, Jesus says in the Greek, hold your horses, right? He doesn't really say that, paraphrase it, but he kind of says that. Hold your horses, just stop for a moment. Because Matthew 5 on another mountain, the commandments came on what mountain? Mount Hor, Mount Sinai, sometimes called the mountain of God. But on another mountain, Jesus, when he came to this earth, in his early earthly ministry, he preached on another mountain, often called the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We have that recorded for us in Matthew. Always remember this, uh, that, that, mount, that Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 chapter 6, and chapter 7. The greatest message ever to be preached, the greatest sermon ever to be preached by the greatest preacher was Jesus. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, You have heard that it was, was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders would be subject to judgment. But he says, But I tell you, or I say to you, anytime that Jesus says, But I say to you, or I tell you, he just raises the bar. He's raising the bar right now. He's taking the law and he's raising the bar. Matter of fact, that's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is raising the bar on the law, and he's doing that right here. And he raises the bar, and he says at verse 22, But I say to you, and I'm paraphrasing this so we can better understand it, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He who insults his brother has liability under the law. He who hates his brother has liability under the law is what Jesus says. And so what happened, Jesus took what that command says, and he said, it's just not our actions of killing somebody. It's just not us killing somebody. But he said, if we have hatred toward our brother, if we have insulted our brother, if we have anger toward our brothers, we have violated this command. And he says, we have a liability under judgment. He says, that's what he's saying, any one of us. And and so when we look at this, we say, we better hold off in the closing prayer because this hits us all. Every one of us in this room has done this. We're honest with ourselves. Every one of us in this room's had this towards someone else at some time in our life. And so we need to talk about this. So if you have your Bibles and you turn to 1 John, 1 John, I appreciate that. We're moving now about 1,500 years after the law was given. The Exodus was about 1446 B.C. This is the end of the first century. And the Apostle John, what we find, he's, he's writing to a group of churches, to believers in Asia Minor, and he's writing these three little letters that are so important. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And the purpose of 1 John, he's hitting all kinds of different themes, but he's really answering the question, 
This is a really important question. How do, you, how do you really know that you're a follower of Jesus? That's what the book of 1 John answers. How do you really know that you're a follower of Jesus? You say, well, I prayed a prayer. And I said this prayer, and because I said this prayer, I, I'm a follower. But, but how do you know? And sometimes after we say that prayer, did I say the right words? Did I really mean it? Maybe I need to include this word, and we say that prayer over and over again. Anybody follow me? Anybody like that? You said it over and over again. But can we know? Can we really know that we're following Christ? Well, God gave us a book in the Bible so you and I can know, and that's 1 John. So you and I can know. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. God wants us to know. And in this book in 1 John, what's really kind of neat about it is he gives these tests in his book. He says, let's look at this test and see if, see if you, they, they apply to you is what he's saying. So we go through these tests is what John is doing in 1 John. Gives all these tests to see if they apply to you to see if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ is what he does. And so if you're wondering about your assurance of salvation or you're wondering about your security as a believer in Jesus Christ, read 1 John because that's what that's about. It's giving us all kinds of tests to see if I'm a follower of Jesus. And I love that book. It's written to believers. It's about fellowship with him and to understand that. So in 1 John chapter 3, he gives us one of those tests is what we see. I want to talk to you about that commandment. It's about how to love is what he's talking about. It involves two steps. Two steps how to love. How do we do this? Uh, when we shall not murder, but how do we do this? So two steps how to love. The first one is deny hate. We have to deny hate. If we're not going to murder, we've got to deny hate. We have to deny hate. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. But before we read that, keep in mind 1 John 3, 10. He reminds them of who they are that you are children of God, and therefore as children of God, this is the way you ought to behave, is what he's telling them. Now let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 15, and he's going to give us one of those tests here. And he says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So John is saying as children of God, one of the, one of the things he's saying here, one of the things you need to do, and it's one of the tests he's saying, one of the tests, he says you are to love your brother. And that's a sign of true faith is what he's saying. That's a sign of true faith that you have love for your brother. In fact, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit's within us, and he produces in us the thing that you and I could not do in such a degree, and that's love for the brethren, is what he says, love for the brethren. But the word brother in John that he writes there, it can involve one or three things that word brother can mean. It, first of all, it could mean your sibling, your sibling. I have three brothers. It could, it could involve my three older brothers. Now, the second way he could be used that John uses it in other places like this in 1 John, it could involve the fellow brother, the fellow believer in Christ. You have Jesus in common, those fellow Christ followers that you have. The third way that he uses the word brother could be uh, your fellow human being is what he's talking about. Everyone. I believe the way he's using it in this context is he's talking to fellow human beings. He's talking to everyone. Some people would say he's restricting it to, to believers in Jesus Christ, but I don't think we should do that because Jesus did not restrict it. When Jesus uses that word, he gave it to the fellow human beings, to everyone. We're to love everyone. When Jesus said, who's your neighbor? 
He answered the question, anybody in your social influence, anybody in your influence circle, anyone that you're out there around, that's your neighbor. And he went on, and what did he say? He says, your friends, and you have enemies, but he said, what did he say? Not only you love your friends, but you're to love your enemies. We're to love everyone. So there should be no one outside your love sphere, no one outside your love zone, nobody. We're to love all people. Doesn't mean we like what they do, but we're to love all people. That's the, that's the message, to love everyone. So he says, love, deny hate. And John says this, everyone who hates the brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So we murder when we refuse to reconcile. We murder when we hate. We murder when we throw insults at others. And so we've broken the sixth commandment. There's liability in that is what he's saying when we do those things. And we're all guilty, guys. We've all done that. None of us can say, I've never done that. I've never been upset. We've all done that. We've all thrown insults. We've all done that. So he says we're guilty. The Pharisees at that time in Matthew 23, they're approaching Jesus, and they're kind of saying, we got it together. We can check off all the commandments because we've got it together. And you can imagine Jesus hearing this. He says, oh, really? You really got it together? And Jesus went from the outside of a person to the inside of a person, like Jesus could always do. And he challenged them with regards to their heart. And he's asked, where is your heart, is what he's asking him. See, it's with faith that we believe, and, and it's our faith shapes and informs our attitudes, and our attitudes shapes our actions is what happens. And so if we're at the place in our Christian walk, in our Christian experience, and, and we're walking with Jesus, and we can, through just self-discipline, control our actions, but we haven't controlled our, our, our attitudes, haven't changed our attitudes at all, he says we're still guilty of murder. Even though we haven't pulled the trigger, we murdered. That's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about in this passage. We're still guilty of it. Even though I haven't done the physical action, I haven't killed him, but I've murdered in my heart. I've murdered him. That's what he's talking about here. Martin Luther talked about this, talked about this commandment. And when he did, he said this, you have sinned when it comes to this commandment of love, sin of commission, things that you and I commit, like insults, anger, hatred, actually killing somebody, then we have sins of omission, the things that we should have done. And he describes it like this. Listen to what he says. He says, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has opportunity, he fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm and injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe them, you have left him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffering hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or so to a similar peril, and you do not save him, although you had ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of this service by which his life might have been saved. That's very heavy. In other words, what he's saying here, and it's true, what he's saying here, he's saying, when you see someone in harm, harming someone else, you don't do anything to help him. He says, that's a sin of omission, each one of us that we have. And he said, when you see someone hungry, and you don't need to do anything about it, how can you say you love him? When you see someone in peril, in, in positions of peril, you have means to deliver them and help them, and you don't do it, you have violated this commandment, is what he's saying. And all of us have done this sometime in our lives. We, we have violated it. So we have to stop. We have to deny hate. But just denying hate doesn't mean that we love. Just because I say I deny hate, I'm not going to hate anybody, doesn't mean you love. That's the second way. That's the second step, how to love. The second step of your outline, love has to be 
demonstrated. It has to be demonstrated. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18, this is what he says. Let's read it together. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And as I'm reading that, it always comes to me as I read that, is Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, where the Apostle Paul writes, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. And, and, and so, it, and then it goes on, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. God knew us, and he knew the depth of our depravity. God knew us, and he knew the, the wickedness to his extent in each one of our lives. He knew everything about you, how wicked, and if we're honest with ourselves, we can get to, to some pretty evil and wicked things in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. And in spite of knowing that, God loves us so much that he demonstrated his love. Think about that. In spite of knowing us better than we know ourselves, inside and out, God knows us, and he demonstrated his love toward us. In spite of knowing that, God loves us. Not just with word or talk. He said, I'm going to write a book about it. But that's whole Jesus' life, wasn't it? When Jesus came, he came and he died for us, died for our sins. That's love, and that's the demonstration of love that God did for you and I. If you don't know the love of God yet, if you don't know the love of Jesus yet, he, Jesus invites you to come to him and find salvation, redemption, and forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. That you come to understand that Jesus loves you. And he went to the cross... And he died on the cross for your sins. He paid your sin debt. He took your place on the cross. He was your substitute. That's God's grace. God's grace was there. And now you want to have to respond to God's grace by putting your faith and trust in the finished work that Jesus Christ did upon the cross. But said, I accept Jesus as my Savior. When we come to him and we say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know two things about Jesus. First, he's the son of God. He's God. And that he died on the cross for my sins. And I come and accept that finished work that Jesus did for me upon the cross by faith. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, that he died on the cross for me. I trust him as my Savior. If you've never done that, please do that today. If you have questions about that, please see me, because that depends where you're going to spend eternity. If you know Jesus, you'll spend eternity with him. If you don't, or if you disregard it or ignore it, you will spend an eternity after this life apart from Jesus. So what you do with Jesus has everything where you're going to spend eternity. With him or apart from him. If you don't understand that, if you have questions, please come and see me after the service. But Jesus died on that cross willingly. No one dragged Jesus to the cross. He went there willingly. He died for our sins. And now he says if we're going to have the love of Christ, that we have to lay down our lives for him, right? We have to lay down our lives. And yet those are the easiest words to say. Because we can all say, yeah, Jesus, I'd be willing to die for you, right? I'd be willing to die for you, especially in America. I'd be willing to die for you. There's probably a bigger challenge to live for him today, right? Because we can all say that I'd die for him, because that's probably never going to have to do that in America. But it's a bigger challenge to live for him. And that's the measurement that the apostle Paul used as, as the way husbands were supposed to love their wives. He said, husbands, love your wives. How much? As much as you love your own bodies. And by the way, as much as Jesus loved the church and gave his life for the church. So I can look at my wife and I say, boy, I, I love you so much that I die for you. And she can look at me and say, oh, yeah, Doug, then why don't you pick up the dishes, right? Why don't you pick up the dishes? Because it's easy to say something that I'm never going to have to do, right? That I'm probably not going to have to die for. It's easy to say that. 
But love, but we have to love. And love is a demonstration. It's an action. It has to be demonstrated. I just can't say it. it has to be demonstrated. So William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, was apparently sent a telegram in those early days, uh, one word telegram, it was just the word others, others. That became the theme for the Salvation Army in 1914. And a ship was going down called the Empress of Ireland, and about 130 men from the Salvation Army was on that ship. And the boat began to sink, there's people in the water, and there was all those Salvation Army leaders died. And they had their life belts on, or their life belts or life vest on, and, and they gave them up to save the lives of other people. And the reports came out that it was said that they took off their belts and they gave them to someone else and they said, I'm more ready to die than you are. And they gave up their lives. That I'm more ready to die than you are. We have to deny hate. We have to deny hate. But denying hate doesn't automatically demonstrate love. And that's the second step. We have to demonstrate love by seeing the needs of other people and meeting those needs. He says, how can you say you love someone and really close your heart and close your checkbook and your wallet to them? How can you say you love them? It's a rhetorical question. We don't. We don't. We have to meet the needs of other people. We have to show love. It's handing out food to those in need as we partner with the Northern Illinois Food Bank on December 2nd to hand out needs. We're seeing people that has needs, physical needs, and we're handing out food. During that time, we usually reach about 100 families as we do that. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. And there's a need there in our community. And we chose to, every, about every three months we do this, right? All through this year, we're going to do it next year. We've already got dates for next year to do this. That we hand out food to those in need. There's a need there. And so we're trying to help out, trying to meet the needs in our community by handing out food. There's a need there. The Christmas shoeboxes give you an opportunity. There's a need to send a shoebox filled with things for children, one, two, ten, how many shoeboxes you want to fill up, how many ever you want to fill up, to send them out to children around the world so they can have a Christmas gift this year. And so they're going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel message about the eternal gift that God offers them through Jesus Christ. You can affect not only a child, but a family. You can uh, impact a generation with that one shoebox or two. The more you fill up, the more chance of impact in families as we fill those up. See, when we think of Jesus, he would help with whomever he could, right? He didn't stop at anyone. He, he loved the unlovable. He loved the disenfranchised. He reached out to them, and he shared his life with them, everything with them, and, and never proven anyone's sin. In fact, he says, go and sin no more. But we have to love like Jesus. We have to do it just like he did. And we have to do it as a church, but we also have to do it as individuals. Don't wait for the church to have an event to say, I'm going to demonstrate love in the community. Do it as individuals. When I think nationally, when I look at the church, I think the church is in, in trouble with regards to how the culture views the church. They, they view the church as hypocritical, judgmental, and not loving. And, and you may, you'd say, I can explain all this, especially in the not loving part today when we look at that, because an unbelieving world looks at the church today and says, if you don't agree with our behaviors, then you cannot love us. If you don't agree with our behaviors, then you cannot love us. We know different from the practice of Jesus. We know that's not true, right? We know that. But we have Chicago Cub fans who don't like Chicago White Sox fans and vice versa. Maybe don't like, it's kind of heavy. But we have Chicago Bear fans that don't like Green Bay Backer fans and vice versa, right? But we have some Christian Republicans who hate Christian Democrats. We have Christian Democrats who hate Christian Republicans. And those figures who lead those parties are hated by the opposing groups, right? In fact, if you're in one of those other parties, you're thinking, how can you possibly even exist 
How can an opposing party even exist, we think, in our hearts and minds? God has called us as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, to a higher standard, to love. We're to love. We're to love all people. There are Christians who hate, who hate those that are in the LGBTQ community. Jesus would not. He would not hate them. Our community is never going to be convinced of our love. They don't think that we like them as people. They have to think we like them. We don't have to approve of their behaviors or anything like that. I'm not asking you to compromise the word of truth of God's word or anything like that. But we have to love people. We have to love all people. We might have disagreements with people, but we still have to love them, right? We're never going to win our enemies to Christ. We might win our friends through, through Christ, but it's only through the love of Jesus that we're going to do that, right? Only through his love. And that's what he wants. So that's the challenge for all of us, all of us here. It's just not, not killing. That's not what he's talking about. Just not not killing. Say, oh, I got this one down. I don't do this. It's denying hate is what he's saying. And it's loving people. Loving people the way Jesus did is what he's talking about. That you and I have the love that Jesus had for all people. So let each one of us ask the Holy Spirit to do an audit in our own lives today and ask him, God, is there anything that may be racism or sexism or any kind of bigotry in our lives? And let's do an audit and let's confess it if there is. Let's not try to compromise it. Let's confess it if there is. And also, maybe if there's a family disagreement that you can't work through or you choose not to, something like that, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to expose those things that we might do the right thing. We find the grace of God to, to love and to reconcile. And, and some of you this morning have been hurt greatly by someone. Been hurt greatly by someone. And, and you're here this morning, it's easy not to like them. Very easy. Maybe even to hate. And when we do that, the Bible says we violated this sixth commandment. So when we choose not to forgive what others have done to us, we put ourselves in this prison. And while we're in this prison, we've, which we placed ourselves in, we allow the, this bitterness and anger to soak in and this hatred build up in our lives toward other people. And what we have to do, we have to come toward God and give it to God so we can be free from that and released from the prison that we have allowed ourselves to be in. When someone has hurt you so badly, no matter what they've done, we have to forgive them. Listen to me. We have to forgive them. We have to find the grace of God to forgive them. And God will help you to have that grace to forgive. But we have to ask God, help me to forgive them. It doesn't mean the relationship would go on like it, it did before or, or, or to go like it on like it never happened, what they did to you. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means, you, you have forgiven them and you've let it go and you have freed yourself from the hurt that they have caused you. That's what it means. That's what we have to do. Don't allow them to put you in prison. But be free of that. Be free of it and let it go so you can move on with your life and not be held in that bondage in that prison, carrying around that ball and chain with you everywhere you go because I got this anger towards someone, this bitterness and this hatred. Let it go. Confess it. And the only way to do that is the power of Christ. The only way that we can do that is to forgive and let go, receive the freedom that Jesus offers by his grace, his comfort, and his love. He will provide that for us when we, re when we just yield to him. We find the grace in, of God to help us to forgive and to let things go. One of the great motivators of doing that, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, right, is through communion. We sinned against an almighty God. We sinned against him, and instead of God just being finished with us and wiping us out, and he would have been justified in doing that, amen, he sent his son, the Bible says, to die on the cross for us. Think about that. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve his forgiveness because we have sinned greatly before God. 
We sin in our hearts and our actions, our motives, our words, and our thoughts, and, and not do the things that we should be doing. All of us have done that. And when we did that, what did God do? Yet God demonstrates his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says when he demonstrated we were God-haters, we were shaking our fists at God, we were deep in our sin, Jesus died for us. He forgave us of the sins that we sinned against him. See, we were, we were all in bondage in our sin. And when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he set you free. He freed you from that bondage. So why would we put ourselves back in bondage by not forgiving someone else? The way Jesus has forgiven you is our example to follow, is the model to follow, that we might forgive others so we can be released from the prison. We have set ourselves in. Don't go back in that bondage. Don't put yourself in bondage because some, what someone has done to you. Choose to forgive. Choose to forgive and let it go and move on. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross makes all that possible. Because of the death of Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We have a relationship with God. We have eternal life. We have hope in eternity. We have a home with him forever and ever and ever. Amen? All because Jesus gave his body and he shed his blood on the cross for you and I. As we take communion this morning, we remember Jesus. As we take that little cup that has that little wafer, that little chip in there, uh, we remember that Jesus gave his body for you. That's why he did it. As we take the cup with the juice, remember that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you. He did it for you. All for you. And so as we take communion together, we remember Jesus. And if you are here today, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. We invite you to partake with this this morning. We're not going to pass the plates. The plates are up here. There's three stations, one here, one over there. Uh, come up and receive the elements, two cups, one on top of the other. Then take them back to your seats, and then we'll take them together. Everyone understand that? We'll take them together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, let's also do a heart check in each one of our lives. Let's confess any sins. Let's get our hearts and lives right before him before we take communion. Lord, we come. We praise you. We praise you so much, Jesus, because, Lord, you are the greatest example of obedience to God. You're perfect in all your ways. And so, Lord, if we need an example, we go to you. And, Lord, I pray that none of us look, but I can't be Jesus. That's always a cop-out. It's always a compromise. As soon as we say that in our hearts and minds, I can't be Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God has given us the power to live for him. It's us that choose not to. God has given us everything that we need to live in obedience to him. Everything that we need. The word of God, the Holy Spirit living beside of us, giving us a relationship with him. So Lord, help us to live in obedience. Help us to deny hate. Deny hate, but choose to love. But not just say I deny hate, but demonstrate that love by seeing the needs of others, Lord, and meeting those needs in whatever way we can. Let's demonstrate love to those around us, Lord, the way that you did. Let's follow your example. Just didn't write a book or say, I love you. But God demonstrated his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You showed us what love is. You laid down your life. You put others before yourself. Help us, Lord, to have that selfless love for others, that unconditional love that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to deny hate. And there's so much hate in the world. Help us, Lord. Lord, it's all right to have teams that we like. It's also like be on a political party. But let's not hate other people. Let's love them. Lord, we may not like people's actions and what they do, 
But we're called to love everyone. We're never going to reach people if they know that we hate them or we don't like them. The only way we will reach them is through love of Christ. So help us to do that. Lord, I thank as we come before communion this morning, Lord, you would examine our hearts and minds this morning. And Lord, uh, just, just if there's any sin in our lives, that we confess it. Holy Spirit, do an audit in our lives real quick. Reveal any sin that we might confess it. You promise to forgive us our sin and cleanse us. So, Lord, when we take communion, it's where we unite with you and unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united that we all agree that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. And as we take communion, we're proclaiming that. And so we might be united in you. And remember, Lord, that you gave your body and you shed your blood for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life and relationship with you. You did it all for us because you love us so much. Help us remember that. Let us remember how much love you have for us. And instead of turning on us because we've sinned, you demonstrated your grace, your mercy, and your love by dying for us and choosing to forgive us. Let's us have that kind of heart with Jesus, love and compassion for others. Help us, Lord. And Lord, as we take communion, we remember Jesus, who lived the perfect life. He did everything perfect. He's a perfect example. That you gave your all for us upon that cross. And Lord, today, this morning, we remember you as we take this communion, as we take these elements. And may you be glorified as we take them. May this be a time of worship in our hearts and minds as we come and remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.